I hate to break up such great conversation. You can make your way back in and find a seat. Could be the one you were in before. Could be a different one. Could be a seat where I can't see you because you're behind the pillar. There you go. Welcome. If we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith and uh, one of the leaders here at Christ Central. So glad that you're here with us this morning. <clears throat> We've had a great few weeks in the life of the church. It's been uh, so good to have Jeremy and Ann with us again uh, for a bit. And uh, um, Karen and I, just for us personally, we benefit so much from having Jeremy and Ann here and they're such an encouragement to us. And their time here really is uh, so valuable for us as elders in just giving clarity and uh, strength to what we're called to do. And so uh, I just want to thank Jeremy and Ann for, for coming. And they're off to Ontario now for, well, what is it, seven weeks in Ontario. So you can be praying for them. And they're back for our church weekend. Right. I get so. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a ventriloquist, yeah. <laughs> Jeremy and Ann are back for our church weekend away, so it won't be too long and we'll see them again. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I haven't preached since Good Friday, so I'm ready to roll this morning. Hopefully you are as well. Uh, I've been looking forward to getting to this passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, because in it, uh, it contains one of those verses that just... Uh, Florus, as you're reading through sometimes, you just hit these verses that you just have to stop on. You have to read again. You have to let them roll over your mind and your heart, and that's where we're at this morning. You'll see it when we read through, hopefully, uh, which verse I'm talking about. Uh, in my opinion, it's one of the most powerful and, and beautifully written uh, illustrations of the gospel in the New Testament. So we're going to go 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 6. And we're going to go through to verse 15. So let's pray, and then I'll read, and then we'll see where we end up. All right, so Father, we're so thankful for your presence here with us. So thankful for you uh, just speaking to us this morning, reminding us of your great love. Uh, we're so thankful for your Father's heart towards us. We're so thankful for that peace that is ours in Christ. And we just pray now as we come to your word. Uh, we ask that your spirit would make it alive to us. Uh, we don't want to just read words on a page and, uh, and have some nice thoughts and then move on with our day. Uh, we want to come to your word humble. We want to come to your word open for your spirit to work through your word. And uh, Father, we want to be changed this morning. We want your word to weigh heavy on our heart, uh, but to also bring the change and the freedom that we know that it's able to do. And so we pray, Father, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, <clears throat> and we're beginning in verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, 
see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what, a per what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. All right. So the first time, or the last time we looked at 2 Corinthians uh, was back in March 18th. So uh, before we jump into what we want to look at this morning, perhaps a bit of a refresher is needed. Some of you can't remember what you ate for breakfast, so trying to remember what I preached on eight weeks ago is a bit of a jump, right? Okay, good, yes, all right, so we'll do a bit of a refresher. Um, so 2 Corinthians chapter 8, our author Paul uh, begins to focus on talking to the church in Corinth about money, and the reason he does this is because he wants to encourage them to continue in their collection for the church in Jerusalem. So we know this from other letters that he's written, other New Testament writings, that the church in Jerusalem uh, was in a rough spot. Uh, there was famine. Um, there was a double taxation that they were under. Uh, they were in deep poverty. There was persecution. Uh, and so Paul and his friends were collecting money from other churches to help out the church in Jerusalem. And Paul had mentioned this to the Corinthians in earlier letters. And for a time, they had, be, they had been collecting. So for a time, the Corinthians were collecting. Uh, but for some reason, they stopped before the collection was complete. And so here in chapter 8, Paul is encouraging them to pick it back up, finish what they started in giving towards the Jerusalem church. And to encourage them uh, in that, he first points the Corinthians towards another church, the church in Macedonia, and shows them the attitude of the Macedonians when it came to this collection. So that's what we looked at last time in the first five verses of chapter 8. But Paul doesn't stop there, and he has a lot more to say on the topic. He has more encouragement for the Corinthians and us this morning in regards to our own giving and generosity. So yes, we're going to be talking about money again this morning. And yes, I have instructed Keith Warrington to again guard the door. <laughs> and you're locked in. Here we go. <laughs> Just so you know, chapter 8, chapter 9, it's all about money. So we're going to be talking about money, generosity, giving, for quite some time, and even as it happens, as Mark is going through the Gospel of Mark, he's getting into some money passages as well. So we'll trust that God wants to speak something to us uh, through this, right? So uh, this morning I want to talk to you about grace versus greed. Uh, we don't know all the reasons why the Corinthians stopped their collection short of fulfilling it, but surely greed was at least a part of it. And to illustrate this battle between grace versus greed, I'm going to use the picture of David 
versus Goliath on the screen because greed can be a giant in our life. Greed can be a giant in our life. As Christians, we have many enemies to our spiritual well-being, lust, anger, worry, but few are as powerful as greed. And so we can get some level of comfort this morning knowing that we all, every single one of us, uh, know this to be true. I don't need to give a dictionary definition of greed because we're all too familiar with it. We all know the power that it exerts on our hearts and the struggle that it can be to break free of its rule. And often we don't even realize how much greed has affected our thinking, our attitudes, and our actions. Charles Spurgeon tells a story of receiving a wealthy man's invitation to come preach at his rural church to help the members raise funds to pay off a debt. And in the letter, the man told Spurgeon that he was free to come and stay at his country house, his townhouse, or his seaside estate. And Spurgeon wrote back one line, sell one of the houses and pay the debt yourself. Because <laughs> we can be so blind to the greed in our own hearts. But there's very little comfort in knowing that all the battle is common to us all. We want victory as well, right? We want victory as well, and victory is possible. So how does one deal with greed? I think Paul shows us a few things here in this section that are of great help, but then one thing that kind of stands above the rest. And so if you go back to the analogy of David and Goliath, if you're familiar with the story, Goliath is mocking the uh, armies of Israel. He's mocking God. David goes out in complete confidence uh, to kill the giant, and he stops, and he takes five stones from the brook, right? It only takes one to kill the giant, but he gathers five, and he has them in his pouch. Um, so in the same way this morning, we'll see some stones that it's good to have in our pouch. It's good not to ignore. It's good to have close at hand, but ultimately there's one stone that will drop the giant greed. Does that make sense? If those kind of pitchers don't work for you, if they just muddy the water, you can just set it aside and you won't lose anything. But if those kind of things help you, then, then you're on board with me. All right? So where there's a bunch of stones that we want to have close at hand, we don't want to ignore, we want to be mindful of. Just like David gathered five stones from the brook and put in his pouch, but ultimately it's one stone that's going to drop the giant. Okay? Awesome. I'm more of a visual guy, so those things help. Some of you might not be. Just toss it aside, and we'll still be fine. Okay? Good. All right. So it's Betty and I, and the rest of you can listen in. Okay? All right. So let's look at what Paul says here. Greed is warring against us. How do we fight back? The first stone is already in our pouch. We put it in last time. Okay? So the first one, uh, in the first five verses, Paul tells the Corinthians all about this group of people called the Macedonians. And he gives the Corinthians a great story of a people who were moved by God to give, to give beyond their means even. And he wants the Corinthians to know about these people. So he wants them to be, uh, to hear this inspiring story. And so stories of people giving can inspire us. They can give, ex give us examples to follow. They're a good stone to have in our pouch. But they ultimately don't change our hearts. 
they ultimately don't change our hearts. They can lift us a bit, but often our default is to say, well, that's good for them, but my situation is quite a bit different from where they are at, right? So those, if you've, if you've heard inspiring stories of people giving and people being generous, it, 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 it can inspire us, it can move us, but ultimately it doesn't change our hearts. It can give us a good example to follow, but we need more than that. So it's a good stone to be aware of, uh, but it's not the stone that drops the giant. So let's get a few more stones in our pouch. All right, so for starters, look at what Paul tells the Corinthians in verses 7 and 8. He says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So what Paul is saying is, hey guys, you've been growing, you've been maturing in your faith, in the way you talk, you've been learning more and more about God, you're filling your mind with good things, your earnestness and your passion for God, that fire in your heart for the things of God has grown as well. Uh, the ESV says, and in our love for you, some translations say, in the love we inspired in you. So either way, the Corinthians were excelling in giving and receiving love. And Paul says, you're excelling in so many spiritual arenas, but don't forget this one, excel in the grace of giving. You've been blessed in other graces, now overflow in generosity to those in need. So the second stone we need to have in our pouch in the fight against giant greed is this. We need to see the importance that generosity has in our spiritual growth. We need to take Paul's words here to heart and realize that generosity is not an elective in our discipleship. Generosity is not an elective in our discipleship. It's not just something that is a nice option on the side. And so often, greed dwells in our hearts because we don't realize the danger and we don't see generosity as an essential part of our growth as Christians. And so when we read that list that Paul tells the Corinthians that we're, they were excelling in, we say, well, we want that firm faith in God. We want to know God's word. We want that earnest passion, that fire in worship. We want that love for one another. We see those things as essential, integral parts of our Christian faith. And Paul says, yes, those things are good. They are foundational elements of Christian discipleship. But don't forget, church, on the same level is giving, generosity. <coughs> Financial giving is on the same level. So one of the main differences between using the, the story of David and Goliath and us in our fight against greed is that many of us aren't facing greed on the battlefield. Many of us aren't, aren't charging against him sling in hand. Many of us have invited greed back to our home and he's sitting on our couch and he's made himself quite at home with us. For some of us, we've gotten so used to living with greed that for the most part, we don't even realize he's there until we have this big, ugly giant sitting in our living room and we don't even notice. We've gotten used to sitting on the floor, we've gotten used to his stench, and we carry on with life as if everything 
is fine. And we fail to see the importance the Bible places on generosity and on financial giving. But Paul says, wake up, Corinthians. You're doing so well in every other area of your Christian walk. You're excelling in so many places, but don't be ignorant of the dangers of greed. Don't downplay the effect that money has on your soul. So we can hear Jesus say things like Luke 12:15, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Matthew 6:21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6:24, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 10:25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And we can read those verses and we can just have a little niggle in our heart and just be like, well, you're kind of exaggerating a bit, Jesus, right? I mean, probably, you know, if we went back and understood the original context, it wouldn't really mean what I'm feeling it means right now, right? And we can try, to try our best to kind of just push those verses away and not let them weigh on us as they should. Did Jesus really mean that? But what Jesus is saying is clear, and we need to let the full weight of it bear down on us. We need to wake up to the fact that money is entwined to our soul. Jesus makes that very clear. And what we do with our money has massive implications on what we value, our affections, and how bound we are to this world. It's impossible to grow into spiritual maturity without committing our finances to God. It's impossible to grow into spiritual maturity without committing our finances to God. Missionary Amy Carmichael said that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So how does that play into your relationship with God? Maybe for some of us this morning, it would be good to ask ourselves the question, and I ask myself as well, have I hit a ceiling in my spiritual growth because I have not begun to give as God's word and his spirit are directing me. Paul says, you're excelling in all these areas, Corinthians. Don't forget this area to excel in. Don't forget this area to excel in. So we need to ask ourselves, have I hit a ceiling in my spiritual growth because I'm not giving as God's word and his spirit is directing me? That's a hard question to ask. That's a difficult one to just let sit on our hearts like that. But that's what Paul is pointing us to and here in these verses. That's the second stone. We need to see the importance of giving in the word. We need to see the importance God's word places on giving and the dangers of letting greed live in our hearts. Do we see that one? Hard. 
as I said the first week, we looked at, at giving. Two things you should have in the back of your mind is that I'm not interested in your money personally, and I'm not preaching from the mountaintop. So uh, going through these verses about generosity and giving is just as difficult for me as it is for you. Uh, but I'm trusting uh, for God's Spirit to change me as well as it changes us. So we need to see the importance God's Word places on giving and the dangers of letting greed live in our hearts. But ultimately, that's not the stone that drops the giant. But Paul has more for us. Let's skip down to verse 11. In verse 11, Paul says, So now finish doing it as well. So he's talking about the collection. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So here, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of their abundance financially. How God has blessed them so much so that currently they don't have any needs. If you remember back when we started this series and we talked about the city of Corinth, they were a major trade route. They had two seaports. There was a lot, a lot of money flowing through the city. And that abundance was all the more obvious when compared uh, to uh, the city that the money was being collected for, Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in the middle of a famine. They're in the midst of intense persecution that's causing them to lose their jobs. They've got tax over here. They've got tax over there. So even whatever money they're earning, it seems to be taken from them. They've got a hand in each pocket, as it were. And so Paul wants the Corinthians church, Corinthian church to see the abundance for what it is. See their abundance for what it is as an opportunity to help those in need. And so easily, greed can not only blind us to the needs of others, but it can blind us to our own abundance as well. John Calvin said, there's nothing more dangerous than to be blinded by prosperity. There's nothing more dangerous than to be blinded by prosperity. A few years ago, we did a series on money and giving, and we put out this graphic in the, in the uh, Christ Central blog, the ever mysterious, elusive Christ Central blog. It does exist. Uh, it is there. It's a bit like the Loch Ness, Loch Ness Monster. Someone sees it every few years, and <laughs> no one else can find it. But it does exist, and uh, we put out this, uh, this graphic about about giving. It was called, you, are actu you Actually Are Richer Than You Think. It was uh, the, the thing we got the most feedback on in our Christ Central blog, generally a good-natured place on the internet. But uh, So we put this out, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I'll just walk us through. And uh, we put it out to just kind of help us see uh, our own abundance on a global scale, right? So what Paul is doing here with the Corinthians, he's, he's showing them their abundance on a global picture. You've got Corinth, you've got Jerusalem, you've got Macedonia, right? 
And so we said with bills, mortgages, taxes, and a multitude of other expenses, it can be easy to think of ourselves as not having enough, but when compared to the rest of the world, the popular bank slogan is surprisingly true. You actually are richer than you think. So then we have Bill, who's working in New Brunswick. He's making roughly $21,000 a year. We'll go to the next slide. So that puts Bill in the top 6.39% of the richest people in the world, making minimum wage in New Brunswick. So there's Bill Gates, and there's minimum wage Bill, uh, just a few slots down, okay? So instantly you're like, okay, that, that starts to change how I'm viewing things of where I'm at financially compared to the rest of the world. Okay, next one. Uh, if Bill was able to climb the corporate ladder and bring in $42,000 a year, which is still under the average income in New Brunswick, he would join Bill Gates in the top 1% richest people in the world. Okay? Just let that sink in for a minute, right? But for now, Bill stays at minimum wage. Okay, next one. So even at minimum wage, it would take the average laborer in Ghana 101 years to make the same amount that Bill makes in one year. Next, with Bill's yearly earnings, he could pay the monthly salary of 99 doctors in Malawi. And then we said that even though he only makes minimum wage and will never have the lifestyle of the rich and the famous, when compared to the rest of the world, Bill is certainly rich. So there's quite a gap when you talk about that 1% can include Bill Gates and a lot of us in this room. That is something to let sink in when compared to the rest of the world. So when we look at the setting here with Paul encouraging Corinth to give to Jerusalem, showing them how the Macedonians gave, we can't make the mistake of thinking that we're anything but the Corinthians in this story. We are the wealthy people. And maybe you think, well, I'm not very wealthy, and uh, I work minimum wage, or I'm a student, or I'm out of work, and that doesn't mean that we don't endure hard times financially. Certainly in the last few weeks, we know many people who are going, going to or or are in some difficult financial times with the flooding. Uh, but Paul is showing us on a global setting, we are the ones in abundance, in abundance. And Paul wants us to be aware of that. We take so much for granted. We find it so easy to look at those who have more and complain. We don't need much help to see our own needs and where we lack and in doing so, we can become oblivious to the needs of others and to our own abundance in comparison. And Paul says to the Corinthians, come on guys, help out, because it might be one day that you need help as well. It might be that the tables get turned and the collection is being taken up for you. So he wants them to have this global view on giving. He wants us to have this global view on giving, on generosity, on wealth, so that we can be reminded of just how little we have to do with how prosperous we are and to realize how fleeting riches can be. 
notice as well that Paul doesn't just give them motivation to give, he gives them some practical advice as well. And there can be a big discussion about tithing and what percentage it is and if it's applicable for the New Testament church. And uh, it's quite uh, telling here because if there was, if Paul was an advocate for the practice of tithing, this would be a very appropriate time to mention it. But listen to what Paul says in verse 12. He says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. And so God doesn't ask us to give beyond our means, although it's certainly acceptable to do so, just like the Macedonians did earlier. And in all our culture, it needs to be said that it's never wise to borrow money in order to give. Uh, but we need to see that rather than make a statement about giving by a percentage, Paul argues for proportional giving. Our giving isn't determined by a fixed percentage. Our giving needs to be proportionate to our wealth. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16.2. He says each is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So it's proportional giving. It's according to what we have. Randy Elkhorn, in his book All About Money, he says, God prospers you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. If that doesn't fly in the face of the American dream, then I don't know what does. God does not prosper you to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. So we cannot be ignorant of our abundance. And it's good to know where we stand, but ultimately that doesn't change our hearts either. Awareness is not the stone that drops the giant. Inspiring stories don't change our hearts. Reading all the commands and the warnings in Scripture about money and about greed doesn't change our hearts. Awareness of our abundance doesn't change our hearts. There's one thing that changes our hearts, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The stone that drops the giant is in verse 9. The stone that drops the giant is in verse 9, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the key verse to the whole of Paul's plea to the Corinthians to give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here is the one truth that has the power to set our hearts free from greed, and rele release us to live a life of radical, joyful generosity. We need to think for a minute about what that means for us. If that is the key to the whole section, then we do well to let that roll over in our hearts and in our minds for a minute. That Jesus was rich, he became poor so that you, though you were poor, 
could become rich. All those other things that we've looked at are useful, they're beneficial, they're helpful, they're good things to be aware of, but they don't change our hearts. They don't change our hearts. Think for a moment what it means when Paul says that Jesus was rich. Jesus didn't begin on Christmas morning, okay? Jesus didn't begin on Christmas morning. I get frustrated as a kid growing up in little churches where sometimes we would sing Happy Birthday Jesus on Christmas Eve. Besides the fact that it just seemed really silly, it downplays and kind of trivializes the fact that Jesus Christ is eternal. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. No beginning and no end. From before the foundation of the world in eternity past to eternity future, Jesus Christ is simply there. He is self-existent. There was never a millisecond in time in which there was not Jesus Christ. He is the immortal, invisible, only wise God. Think about the riches of Jesus' glory. Think about the riches of Jesus' glory. Think about the riches of his immeasurable power. With a word he creates, when he says, light be, light is. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together by the word of his power. If he had pleased, he could have spoken worlds into existence. He could just lift his finger and a new universe as boundless as our own would spring into existence. With a thought, millions of angels could flash into being. He spoke and it was done. All of creation is his. He says in Psalm 50, 10 to 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not even tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Think about the riches of Jesus Christ's creating power. Think about the riches of his splendor and his majesty and his beauty as he sits on his throne in Isaiah 6. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Think about the riches of the majesty of Jesus. Think about the riches of his joy, and the riches of his love, and the riches of his mercy. You do not know how great and how unbelievably rich Jesus Christ is. We can't even comprehend it in our minds. We can quote scripture and we can do our best to get a visual image in our head, but it does not come close to the actual riches 
of Jesus Christ. He was rich. He is rich. For eternity, Jesus Christ is rich in every possible way. And Paul says that Jesus stepped out of that richness and stepped into poverty. Philippians 2, 6-8, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus came to earth, he was born into a poor family in a dirty stable. He was laid in a feeding trough. Throughout his ministry, he was associated with the poor and the outcast. He commented that even foxes had places to lay their heads, but he didn't. But real poverty came when he went to the cross, and he reached the very bottom of the depths of spiritually poor as he took on the sins of the world. And what's staggering when you read through, through Isaiah is you read Isaiah 6, and you have this picture of a majestic, you know, a ruler sitting on a glorious throne and it just seems so lofty and so beautiful and just splendor and majesty and honor and then you get to Isaiah 53 and you see that that same one that's described in Isaiah 6 is now said to have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. The same one we read in Isaiah 6 that sits enthroned above the earth in power and glory is described in Isaiah 53 as one who was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. No eye has seen the height of the riches of Jesus, and no one has experienced the depth of the poverty of Jesus. And why did he do it? And Paul tells us in verse 9, he says, he did it for your sake. He did it for your sake. It's one thing to see a person go through that that from the height of riches, and then you see them take on such poverty. And when you see that, you want to know why. Why would a person do that? Why would a person give up that life so full of richness to take on a life of such poverty? Why would he do it? And Paul says he did it for your sake. He did it for your sake. He became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And don't try to twist it and make it a prosperity gospel about Jesus making you materially rich. Just like Andy came up a few weeks ago and talked about if we're coming to God, we should expect greater things than what the world offers. So God making us rich has to be infinitely better than the world making us rich. The riches we have in Jesus are forgiveness, adoption, union with Christ, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. These are the things that can't be earned by effort or bought at a market. 
as poor as we once were, we have been made exceedingly, eternally rich in Jesus. It can be so easy for myself to look on the wealth of others and be jealous, but we need to see that material, earthly riches are like a bucket of water that eventually runs dry. But as Christians, we have a spring of God's grace that is always bubbling up. And even if we draw from it every day, it will never, ever run out. And a spring of living water is always to be desired over a pool of stagnant water, no matter what the size of each is. Give me the spring of living water over a stagnant pool of water, no matter what size it is. For your sake, he did it. For my sake. Spurgeon said to take those three words, take them to your heart, and see if it doesn't melt you. For your sake. He was rich, and he became poor for your sake. Just go ahead and say those three words. You can say them out loud, just under your breath. You can say them loud if you want. For my sake. For my sake. That's why he did it. He was rich and he became poor for your sake. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. That's the stone that slays the giant greed in our lives. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I could stand up here and I could tell you a bunch of inspiring stories of people giving, living generous lives. We could walk through all the very uh, hard and strong commands and warnings in the Bible as it concerns greed, as it concerns giving and wealth. We could bring up all the statistics and put up all the heart-wrenching pictures of poverty around the world, but without this truth behind it, your heart will remain unchanged. You could begin to give more, but it would be a cold labor. It would be a duty born out of guilt. But when we grab hold of the truth of the gospel that says you were in spiritual poverty, but Jesus took on your poverty and you have been made spiritually rich in him because of nothing that you've done, but only because of the generous grace of God towards you. The power of that truth changes us. The power of that truth sets us free. It's only God's grace towards us in Jesus that can kill the giant greed in our heart and set us free to live a life of radical, joyful generosity if christ has given to us in that way then how can we not then live a life of giving what hold does money have on our hearts when the riches of god are ours if god's generosity has flown to us but it's not flowing through us then we've missed it we've missed it
In a moment, we're going to take communion together and celebrate and remember what Jesus has done. But if this morning, God's Spirit has shone a spotlight on your heart like it has mine, and you suddenly realize the greed that's been lurking around, you need to know that God hasn't brought, to your, brought that to your attention so that you can wallow in misery. He's brought that to your attention to set you free from it this morning. If this morning you've been giving and giving and giving, but it's been cold, it's been heartless, duty, God wants to ignite that joy that comes from seeing Jesus give up his riches so that you could become rich in him. And your heart flooded with his grace. If the desire of your heart this morning is to live a more generous life, it's interesting that Paul says to the Corinthians that they had a desire to do it. Something knocked them off. Something came into their life and, and kind of snuffed out that desire that they had to give. And so if that's you, if you had that desire to give, you have a desire to live a generous life, but maybe something's come in the last week, maybe something's come in the last year, five years, ten years, and you see that desire snuffed out, and the, and the desire of your heart this morning is to say, God, I want, I want that generous heart rekindled in me. I want to once again live that life of radical, joyful generosity. And you call on Him to stir that desire back up in you. If God's been speaking to you in any of those ways through his word this morning, I'm just going to invite you to stand up and I'm going to pray. So I'm already standing. My desire is to live a more generous life. I see the greed in my own heart. I see a lot of God's generosity flowing to me and I don't see very much of God's generosity flowing through me. And I want to see that changed. I want a new experience of His grace to free me to live in those ways. I'll pray for us and then I'll turn it over to Ollie and, and we'll celebrate communion together. God, our desire is to grow in grace this morning. Our desire is to grow in the grace that sets us free from the greed that uh, can be so entrenched in our hearts. And so I just pray, Father, that you would come now. Your word talks about grace and peace being multiplied to us. <clears throat> it's so interesting that Ben focused on peace earlier, which can be that fear and that worry can just cripple us from giving of ourselves and being generous. And so I just pray, Father, that grace and peace would be multiplied to us as a church this morning. I pray for those here who have never experienced the grace of Jesus. That what we read in verse 9, that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake so that through his poverty they might become rich. If they don't know that to be true in their lives this morning, I pray that they would see it, Father, that you would work in their hearts and give them eyes to see just the greatness of what you've done for them through Jesus. They would 
turn, repent of their sin, turn to you. We pray for a flooding of your grace, of your peace, of your love in their heart right now. They would experience, not just in their head, but in their heart, the richness of what Jesus offers them. For those of us who have been following you for a number of years, I pray, Father, you do such a work in our hearts that, yeah, we would hear the inspiring stories, that we would take serious your commands and your warnings in Scripture, that we'd not turn a, a blind eye to our own abundance, but ultimately, Father, we want to be more immersed in your gospel. We want a greater experience of your grace in our hearts. We want to be changed, Father. My prayer for us as a church is that we would be a church of radical, joyful generosity in this city. Set us free this morning, Jesus, in your name. Amen.